Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. She's going to be appealing this. Uh, Renee Novotny, thank you very much for taking the time to come on the program. Appreciate it. Thanks, Dan. I appreciate you bringing a little light to this. That does it for us tonight. Banfield starts now. Good to have you here. You know, I was about to say welcome to Wednesday night. <laughs> I think it's Tuesday. It's been a long week so far because we have so much material to bring to you tonight. Uh, so I want to start with the Idaho uh, murders because we have a kind of a weird development tonight. And I would like to uh, share it with you. I had a phone call yesterday with a very prominent lawyer. Um, so prominent he defended one of the most prominent murder cases in the history of America. Uh, Cheney Mason defended Casey Anthony, and he told me a thing or two about what's happening in Idaho and a very big concern that he has about the Idaho murder house right there, 1122 King Road, being torn down. Wait until I explain to you something I did not think of, uh, but he uh, was very kind in, in telling me. What a weird twist if tearing that house down could actually set Brian Koberger free if he's convicted. I know that sounds crazy. I know it sounds crazy. But wait until you hear the explanation, because it's not. And once Cheney Mason told me a couple of the other reasons, I recognized a few other cases in the past where I have seen it happen. I will explain to you that little advantage. It's called the Hail Mary card that Brian Koberger could pull. And Ann Taylor with the blonde hair there sitting beside him, it could end up losing her a job. So all that's coming up next. And then Jeffrey Epstein, that is a name that makes uh, people get very different reactions. Some people are revulsed by the name, other people angered, um, some people terribly saddened because they've been victimized by him, and other people scared because Jeffrey Epstein went to his deaths with some secrets, like who might his compatriots have been? Um, he had a little black book with like 177 names in it. And all up until now, it's been kept secret, sealed by the court. And now it's not. Judge decided in just ooh, a little bit, about two weeks, uh, it's going to be cracked wide open for everyone to see. But here is my question for you. Jeffrey Epstein led a couple of lives, one super horrible and one actually pretty good, charitable, he hung with the highest in society, and he gave a lot of money away to good causes. What about all the people in the little black book who were part of that? 
Are they about to be smeared by the name Epstein in the public? I'm going to go through all that in a moment and what their recourse might be, if there is any. Uh, and then this story of the torso that was discovered in a suitcase in Los Angeles. We knew it was a woman. We suspected it was the mother of the three kids whose father was arrested, whose father-in-law was a big Hollywood star agent, super powerful. Now we have the ID, but what we don't have is the location of her parents. They're gone, presumed dead, lots of blood found, but no bodies. Can you prosecute if you don't have the bodies? Boy, have I got a story for you tonight. Yes, you can. And the man who's joining me did just that. There was no blood. There was no body. And he got his conviction. And man, was it a story. So that's all coming up in just a few minutes. Let me start here, though. We are on the countdown. And it is only nine more days until that house at 1122 King Road in Moscow, Idaho, is set to be torn down. Uh, effectively, when the wrecking ball hits, this is going to wipe away the biggest piece of evidence in the Brian Koberger quadruple murder case. I mean, it doesn't get much bigger than a house like that. And since the announcement was made last week that we now have a date, December 28th, three days, four days, three days after Christmas, um, we have heard a lot of strong arguments, both for and against the demolition. The University of Idaho owns the house, and understandably, the university wants to be rid of it uh, so that the students and the staff and all of Moscow can really, you know, start healing. The parents of Ethan Chapin agree with the university. They still have two kids attending there. Uh, Ethan's brother and sister are still students. But the parents of the other three victims, Maddie Mogan, Kaylee Gonzalez, and Zana Kernodal, all three of them are in lockstep. They want that house to stay up. They say, what if it's needed as evidence during Koberger's trial? What if it's just a glitch that can be resolved by the house being standing. Regardless of all of that, both the prosecution and the defense have given the green light to the demolition. So is the judge. Could this actually help Brian Koberger in the long run? What if it could? I want you to stay with me here, because under a fairly plausible scenario that few people are really talking about, if Koberger is found guilty, he still has another card he can play after his appeals. It is called ineffective assistance of counsel. Translation, my lawyer stinks, even if they don't. Basically what this is in criminal justice, it's a Hail Mary. It's been used time and time again, and sometimes it works. Koberger, you know, could petition the court to toss out the conviction by arguing that his lawyer never ever should have agreed to that demolition. The biggest piece of evidence in the case, why would she do that? Why would she agree before my trial to get rid of evidence that, who knows, might have actually helped to exonerate me? In just a moment, a lawyer whose defendant used that Hail Mary and won. His client is now free after being sentenced to life with no possibility of parole for murder. But first, I want to go to News Nation senior national correspondent Brian Enton for an update on where we are with the demolition plans. So, um, you know, understandably, uh, Brian, I don't think it's a secret that the people at the university are they're so exhausted by the scar of that house on campus. And it's just off campus, but it's visible on campus. 
But the community online is a, is a different animal. What's happening there? Yeah, you know, it's interesting, actually. I don't think I've heard one expert who you have interviewed or one expert who I have interviewed who has said that they believe the house should be torn down. Everyone that we're talking to is saying the opposite. And that seems to be the consensus online, too. I mean, there's now the petition that's been started. People are really, really upset about this, and they don't understand it. They don't understand why you would tear the house down uh, before trial. But it's interesting when you're on the ground in Moscow, and I was there last month, and this has been an ongoing issue, so I was asking students about it on campus. There is this sense in the small college town that they want the house gone. Uh, it's a painful reminder of what happened. Also, remember, actually, I mean, these are these are college kids. I mean, they, they want to move on with their college career. Yes, they uh, respect the victims, and the, and the candlelight vigil on the one-year anniversary was packed with thousands of these kids. So, you know, they respect the victims, but in, in many ways, they want to move on, and there's move on, and there's this sense that the town wants to move on. I'd be so curious about the um, the students at the University of Idaho in the criminal justice program who may yeah. look at things a little differently than, say, somebody who's you know in uh, in law or in politics or you know commerce or something like that. So let's talk about the date. December 28th. I, I don't see any changes. I don't see anything from the university side of things where they're wavering like they have a couple times in the past. So what the choice of that date is actually pretty clever, isn't it? It is. And the plan does seem set in stone this time. I mean, you and I have talked about it. Um, they've got the contractor lined up. They've got the media staging area. And, and the date, I mean, it, it sort of makes sense from their perspective. It's after Christmas. It's before New Year's. There's not a lot of people on campus during that time. I've been there uh, around that time. And in the summer when the students are gone, I mean, it's almost like a ghost town. So it makes sense that they would want to do it then. They said it's going to take a couple of uh, days. But in terms of timing, I went back looking through all the statements that we've gotten. And I went back to March 22nd, so nine months ago. That was the first time I saw that we had an email that was sent to the victim's families. And I want to read you part, Ashley. It was from a lawyer at the University of Idaho who emailed the families and said, the homeowner gifted the house to the University of Idaho with the intent by both parties that it be demolished. Um, so, so that was three months after Brian Koberger's arrest. And they already intended to tear that house down and said that it was the opinion of the homeowner and the university who had been gifted the house. So they've wanted this house down oh, basically since the beginning, Ashley. I just keep going back to the, you know, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas um, school where, uh, you know, horrendous school shooting happened in 2018. And it was four and a half years hmm. before the, um, I call it the, the sort of the murder or the, the, you know, the death penalty phase in, in the case was played out because the, you know, the defendant pleaded guilty. So it just had to be a death penalty uh, phase that needed a jury, which was a couple months long. But they kept that school intact. They, I mean, just imagine those hallways with book bags scattered, bloodstains scattered. They did not clean up that scene. They preserved the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas school scene for four and a half years. Brian, I just found out tonight, it's still not even demolished. The demo on that school isn't scheduled until summer of 2024, mm. another six months. Yeah. So you think about that case, and, and, and he pleaded. It was just a death penalty phase they needed to, to deal with there. 
That school, Ashley, by the way, that building is in the middle of the school campus there in Parkland, Florida. So there are kids that had to walk around that building every single day. Remember, this house is to the side of of the campus. It's not right in the middle of the campus. And in Parkland, they put these beautiful banners of the victims up, a big fence and beautiful banners of the victims. So when the kids walked around, they saw their beautiful faces. I don't understand why that, that hasn't been brought up uh, in, in Idaho. I mean, they haven't put a big fence around well, the house or tried to block off you. Maybe the, honestly, maybe the looky-loo part of it where they have crime tourists, which maybe at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, because it was a school shooting, maybe there wouldn't have been as many. I'm, I'm not sure, but one really quick question, and I'll have to wrap it, and that is that, is there anything left, any Hail Mary pass that anybody can present to put this demolition off? Well, I've been talking to sources about that question, and there's one thing that I've come up with. It's called a civil action. It's possible that someone, perhaps the victim's family member, could file a civil lawsuit uh, against the University of Idaho. And then as part of that lawsuit, ask for an injunction claiming that the House is potentially evidence. And if they do that, it is possible uh, that they could keep the house standing. It's a big if. Also, it would be very expensive. I mean, I'm talking $100,000, maybe more for a massive lawsuit. And remember, you're up against the University of Idaho, a ton of connections in that town, political connections. Um, so it, it's a big if, but, but that's, that is one uh, possibility. Well, that's a good point, Brian Enton. Uh, appreciate that. Thank you so much. We'll continue to watch. As we said, the countdown is on. We're eight days away from that. Uh, if that house is torn down as scheduled December 28th or any time before that there's any verdict, it could actually be a gift to Brian Koberger. I mentioned this off the top of the show. Could be a gift, especially down the road. But it would mean throwing his current lawyer under the bus and maybe ending her career. And here's what I mean. Ann Taylor is a public defender. She is Koberger's public defender. She has agreed with the prosecution to knock down that house before trial. If Brian Koberger is found guilty, he could just turn around and blame his conviction on her and and say, what a bad decision. Call it ineffective assistance of counsel, aka my lawyer screwed up. It happens all the time. Often it is a last-ditch effort by defendants who are out of appeals. They blame their lawyer, because why not? What do you have to lose? Hat tip to the men who defended Casey Anthony. Cheney Mason pointed this out to me yesterday. Said it's a very real reality in Idaho. If something is hinky during trial, something that could have been remedied by, say, a visit to the crime scene, it could be seen as a grave mistake on the part of Koberger's lawyer, since she agreed to have that crime scene destroyed. If this sounds like a long shot to you, it has worked before, my friends. One of the best examples was the trial of Cynthia Summer. She was wrongfully convicted of murdering her husband, a US Marine named Todd Summer. That was back in 2007. The prosecutor said she poisoned Todd with arsenic and they offered all these lab tests showing that Todd had enough arsenic in his system to kill a couple of horses. They also went ahead and told the jury that Cynthia wasn't grieving the way she should be You know, she was a widow, a woman. She'd gotten a boob job and she dated other men after Todd died. How dare she? And the jury bought it and they convicted her and they locked her away for life without parole and they took her kids away. Here's the rub. Her lawyer never presented an expert to tell the jury that some people actually grieve differently. And she called him out on it. 
and she won. Ineffective assistance of counsel. She called him out and she won it. They threw out her conviction based on ineffective assistance of counsel. For the record here, the prosecutors didn't even bother to try her a second time because, oh yeah, the lab, that lab made a huge mistake. Todd's samples actually contained no arsenic at all. They had been tainted. Oops. Todd actually died of natural causes. What do you know? No murder. Cynthia Summer was set free after two years and four months behind bars. Her name, her home, her reputation, gone. Her children, gone. Ineffective assistance of counsel. It worked. I'm joined now by Alan Bloom. He was Cynthia Summer's second attorney, the one who got her released, not the ineffective one. Um, Alan, I, I'm so glad that you're here tonight because when Cheney Mason brought up the possibility of ineffective assistance of counsel, if Koberger is convicted in the Idaho case, I immediately thought about you and I wanted to get your, your thoughts. What do you think about that? Did you say that the, that the defense attorney in this case actually conceded the fact that they could destroy this uh, yes. crime scene? Yes. Okay, so yes. now you're dealing on, on very iffy grounds. Now you have a situation where counsel is not attempting to preserve it. There is no question in the world that what should be done in this circumstance is that counsel should request that the court preserve the crime scene if the prosecution is going to push for its destruction or going to allow it, or if the court over rules that request and allows for the destruction of the crime scene. At that point, you can at least say that the defense has been denied one of its rights, its critical right to properly prepare for the case if, and this is a key thing, if some piece of evidence is found down the line that would have made a difference in the case. You mentioned Cynthia's case. In Cynthia's case, what we found was that the prosecution had not properly handled the, the lab work that was done, and they had tainted it. And yet we found a third batch of samples that had not been touched and were pristine. We were able to compare that to what the tainted evidence was that was presented in court. And we showed then that the, the evidence that was preserved showed that there was, as you said, no arsenic at all in his system. They would have to find that type of incredibly powerful evidence at the crime scene that wasn't available to the defense because it was torn down. You know how this works. I mean, you, you're a master of uh, the courtroom. You never know what's going to happen in a murder trial. Most defense attorneys I've spoken with, and prosecutors too, say there's, there's always something that throws them for a loop uh, when they actually get to the litigation phase. So I guess the point is, why would you agree to this, why would you as a defense attorney agree to tear down that house knowing something could happen during trial and you can't remedy it with the house still standing and your job could be on the line because if he decides to throw ineffective assistance of counsel out there, that's on your head. Well, I'm not so much worried about the lawyer. If you want to know, I'm worried about the accused, the person who's charged with this crime who didn't get a chance to present the evidence that should have been presented. Now, I'm not saying... I said that actually a little bit wrong. I said didn't get the chance. We don't know if there's something key inside that house or not. But you're absolutely right. Once they demolish the house, the crime scene is gone. There is no opportunity at that point to present something that might come up. And you, and you also write about something else. A murder trial evolves. It starts in one spot 
And every case that I've done, and I've done hundreds of them, every case that I've done ends in a different spot. You can't predict exactly what's going to happen. And there is no way that this house shouldn't be attempted to be preserved so that it can be reviewed at some later point when that issue finally comes up. We don't know all the issues that will be presented at trial. The defendant doesn't know what's going to be important to it. We, get a, we have a strong idea, but we don't know for sure, and you're not going to know, and you're never going to have a chance to check it out if this, if this crime scene isn't preserved. Alan, do you think it's possible, because there's a gag order in this case, so we really don't know a lot. Uh, we certainly don't know what the, what the state has on Brian Koberger. We think it's a lot. What we do know is a lot. But is it possible at this point that the state has, through discovery, shared with the uh, defense attorney enough for them both to know, we've got him dead to rights. This eventually is going to end up in a plea, plea deal. Let the house come down. Let the community heal. You, you, is you it dead possible to there's to the any sense? kind of discussion like that? Go ahead. Are you still there? Can you hear me? Did you mean dead to rights to the sense that you know that some... Okay. You mean dead to rights to the sense that you finally, that you're sure that somebody died from arsenic and then you find out that he didn't die from arsenic and all? There is no That's a good point. such thing as dead to rights. There is no such thing as being certain in a case. It's entirely possible that there is an enormous amount of evidence in this case. I don't know one way or the other. I do know, though, that no case ends up where it began. There's always variations high and low with it. I do also know that preserving the third-party crime scene in this case is an essential thing that should and must be done. Whether the court's going to do it or not, then it's on the court. If you, if you go to the court and you say, no, this evidence should be preserved, this should be preserved, because we don't know everything right now. I can send my investigator, my experts in there for a day or 24 hours now, but that's here we are in December. This trial is going to be the next number of uh, months from now. We don't know what the issues are going to be presented. We don't know every one of those issues, and we shouldn't we should not uh, remove the opportunity for my client to have a fair trial. On balance, what are you talking about? From what I've understood, the university is interested in getting rid of a very bad emotional place in the hearts of everyone around it, and I can totally understand that, and that they're going to build a garden and a memorial that's going to be there to, to yep. memorialize the loss that was suffered here. But you balance how but is that worth, critical, is that worth how the, the, the necessary... Exactly. Is that to do it right now. You don't have to have yeah. a memorial. Right. Should you do it right yeah. now? And you they, balance that right now. You know what, Alan? I'm having problems with your signal, and it's super yeah. frustrating because you're making such incredible points, but I keep getting you frozen up. You know those crazy I'm Zoom sorry. calls where people freeze? I'm so. sorry. <laughs> I'm going to have to get you back another time, and yeah. you have to call your cable provider and get, get an upgrade in the Internet service. <laughs> Alan, we'll thank you for that. being on. I so appreciate it. Can I just say thank you again for the work you did in that courtroom, helping an innocent woman uh, live her life again and, uh, and capture the pieces and put them back together. Thank you for your work. Thank you. Alan Bloom joining us live. Coming up next, he was a fixture among the Manhattan elite. He gave money to all the top schools, all the top causes. He even pledged millions to brain science and hospitals and artificial intelligence. But, you know, he also raped a bunch of young girls, children, and then died by hanging in his jail cell. There's just been so much secrecy around Jeffrey Epstein and his millions. But some of it is about to be published, specifically his little black book. 
Now, there may well be a few dirty birdies in that book, but what about all the people who were there for the charity or the business connections? Will they be tarnished by Epstein's crimes? Who's in the book? Who is in the book? And where can you see it? That's next. Talk about guilt by association. It's tough to come up with a name more radioactive in the past few years than one Jeffrey Epstein. This is the guy who went from private island parties with presidents and princes to a jail cell charged with trafficking underage girls for sex. He never made it to trial because he hanged himself in custody. In 2019, don't start with me. I'm not getting into the conspiracy theories. That's not what this story's about. But uh, a lot of his friends and associates were not exactly heartbroken that their own names wouldn't be revealed in open court once he was dead. Now, though, a federal judge in New York has ordered a stack of documents related to Jeffrey Epstein unsealed on January 1st, New Year's Day. Woo! <laughs> the names of almost 180 people who knew him or dealt with Epstein in all walks of his life, social, business, otherwise, those are all about to be made public. In effect, his little black book is about to be published. And some, if not most, are very likely innocent and unaware of Epstein's crimes. But if any of them hope to stay anonymous forever, well, forever just arrived. I want to bring in Josh Schiffer. He is a criminal defense attorney and a former prosecutor, uh, knows this story well. Josh, he, listen, Epstein had influence in so many aspects of society. Do you think there's going to be a lot of people who are unfairly tarnished by his stinking brush? You know, I really wonder with that gap in time since the, the, these names actually were involved in the case that's going to get released. Some of these actions go back into, you know, 2014, 15, 16. And then, of course, we've had so much uh, change here over the last several years. It's a different universe than it was when this case originally broke open. So I don't think that the, that the toxicity is there, but at the same time, Jeffrey Epstein's name is a cultural touchstone. He's become a meme in itself. Uh, just, you know, everything that that yeah. case entailed, everyone knows about. So, Josh, the thing is, like, most people hear the name Jeffrey, like you said, and they think freak, creep, pedophile, you know, sex offender, uh, all the, and, and then conspiracy. But I think a lot of people don't know, and I'm not trying to rehabilitate his image. That's not what this segment's about. He did give a bunch of money to, to Harvard, uh, to MIT, to hospitals, green initiatives, uh, artificial intelligence projects. Um, but here's the thing. Even though he pledged a lot of money, New York Times did a big investigation and found out he didn't give anywhere near the amount of money he pledged. He gave tens of millions away, but not billions like he was touting. You know, he wanted to repair his reputation because things were starting to get, you know, going sideways. Nonetheless, Absolutely. a lot of people would have been involved in all of that, right? A lot of people would have believed his crap. They would have believed he was uh, giving away billions to charities. And they would have allied with him and sidled up to him and maybe ridden on his plane or even gone to the private island. How are they going to differentiate themselves from the freaks of the world who wanted to party with his young ladies? I think it's going to be in how they respond to this release. There's a total of 187 listed names, but then there's some duplicates in there. There are some minors, so those names aren't going to be released. There are some victims, those names aren't going to be released. And we know that there's at least one person who's spent a lot of money to try to maintain their anonymity. But a lot of the people on this list are people we've already heard. 
And then we're going to think about the kind of people that work for the organization that existed. So they may not be notable. I think the people you're referring to are all of the people that wanted to be in the orbit. Jeffrey Epstein exuded money and power and influence and cool. He was the ultimate exclusive cool kids club. And if you knew him, you could go to his island where everybody's literal fantasies came true for good and, as we now know, really bad. Uh, I think that people, though, from dealing with him back then, there's been so much distance. If they respond appropriately, they'll be able to cement a separation between Epstein and themselves. You but you never know. We don't have the context yet. You said something so interesting a second ago. People who've spent a lot of money to try to get their names redacted. Uh, can you just go a little further on that? Like, can they get their names redacted? How much money are we talking? And what kind of people would need to do that if they weren't, say, the guilty types? So there's a lot of reasons someone wouldn't want their name associated with someone whose name is literally everything bad in high society and regular society, for that matter. Um, so if you were someone of particular current relevant importance, think someone big in finance, think someone big in politics. Jeffrey Epstein knew everyone. When you said earlier he, he palled around with royalty, literally, he palled around with royalty, not just of the Central European kind, but all royalty from no. around the world. Prince Andrew, two U.S. presidents, all of the, you know, uh, Lex Wexner, all the banking executives. I mean, he, he literally was a fixture in New York's highest society. So I think a lot of people, I think Katie Couric was a big friend of his. She was at parties with him. And so I think there are a lot of people shaking in their boots. I have to cut it there, but can you come back on this topic? Because we are only not even two weeks away from getting this list. Anything for you, Ashley. Aw, Josh Schiffer, you're the greatest. Happy holidays, my friend. It's nice to see you again. Happy holidays. Have a great one. Thank you so much. You too. I'll check in with you in the new year. Okay, coming up in uh, just a moment. Hmm, headless torso found in an L.A. dumpster. This was about uh, a little over a month ago. And now officially we have a name, but her parents, who are still missing and presumed dead, they have not been found and maybe never will be. The question is, how are prosecutors going to mount a case against her husband if they can't find the bodies of the wife and her parents? Well, guess what? It's been done before, and it has been done well. After the break, the prosecutor who sent a lawyer to jail for murdering a wife that no one ever found. True crime mysteries go, the name of the murder victim whose torso was found in a dumpster six weeks ago in L.A. in a suitcase. Well, it wasn't much of a mystery, really. The only question is why it took authorities so long to confirm that it was a woman named Miley Haskell, mother of three, daughter-in-law of a Hollywood super agent named Sam Haskell. Uh, that super agent has a son whose name is also Sam Haskell. He's Sam Haskell IV, and Sam Haskell IV was arrested the day the torso was found. Torso of his wife. Son fancies himself a filmmaker, too, mostly B-movies, though. He was arrested because police say he was caught on video dumping a large bag in that same dumpster. And before that day, laborers had called the police to the Haskell family home saying that they'd been hired to cart away some trash bags, but mm, something was odd. They believed that they might have contained body parts. So Sam Haskell, 
IV, was soon charged with um, that murder of his wife, but also two others. So three, three murders in total. Um, his wife and her parents, who are missing and presumed to have been killed in the same day and in the same way as their daughter. The DA says that there was blood and other evidence inside the house that they all shared, but no bodies and apparently no body parts either, which is pretty troubling. Because could that hurt the case, having no bodies or body parts to show the jurors? Maybe not. Because cases like this are not as rare as people think. I myself covered uh, the story of Janet March, a wife and a mom from Tennessee. She disappeared in 1996. Here she is in better days. And a full decade later, her lawyer, husband, Perry March, was convicted of the killing. Despite the fact that Janet has never been found. Perry March... Lawyer, husband, convicted. Janet's never been found. Can you imagine how tough prosecuting that case must have been? You don't have to imagine it because the man who did it is here. Tom Thurman was the deputy DA who sent Perry March to prison, and he's live with me now. Tom, thanks for being a guest on the program. Do you have any thoughts on this case in Los Angeles of uh, Miley Haskell and the parents who are missing? Do, do Do you think they have a shot at getting a conviction without two bodies and with only a partial third body? I think definitely they do. Sounds like they've got a lot of evidence. They'll have a lot better advantage than we did because we didn't really have a crime scene for a long period of time. Uh, Sounds like they've got blood evidence, which I assume they may match to the missing victims. Uh, The fact that they know that the wife was killed right there in the same area and dumped, I think it'll be, I think, a fairly easy case to prove, even if they don't find the bodies. But it sounds like these workers that move the body parts supposedly should be able to lead the police to those and they should find them, I would think, even if they're in a landfill somewhere. But, uh, but uh, They tried. I, they tried, but they couldn't get, they couldn't get to uh, wherever those trash bags were taken. It was too late. And so they've said it's like a needle in a haystack now to try to find these, these parts. But there's a big difference between today's prosecutions and your prosecution of, of Perry March. We didn't have near the number of street cameras and, and cell phone cameras and video that's basically tracing our every step um, that, that we do today. Do you think that's going to be a huge help? Because they've said they've mapped him out to moving around a huge part of the city all around the time that these three people disappeared. Yes, I think it would be a huge help to the police and the prosecutors. As many cameras as they have in the L.A. area, I'm sure they'll be able to find some of his movements on there and uh, might even lead them to where the bodies are buried. Yeah, you did a fantastic job um, with with the Perry March case. I only have 20 seconds left, but I do have to ask you this. Uh, The March children were very young, but one of them, as I recall from the case, said Daddy wrapped Mommy up in in the carpet. And so that became a critical piece of evidence. From what I understand, the, the, the children um, belonging to the Haskells were young as well. Do you think it's a possibility that they'll be brought into this case um, with any of the recollections they can mutter, even if they're just little, little kids? Uh, it depends on the age. Sammy was five at the time. That He did not say he saw his mother wrapped up in a rug. That was a police officer that theorized on that, that kind of got out of a rumor that wasn't true. But Sammy played an integral part in the case because uh, of the statements he made at school uh, the next day about he didn't see his mother, she didn't tell him goodbye, and then 
he had been coerced into a statement in Mexico by his dad that he did see her and he waved at her and all kinds of stuff. So that was in there. Mm-hmm. a big part of it, Sammy was. Yeah, kids are always a, a tricky part of it. They can be helpful, but they can also be, you know, very easily a cross-examinable uh, issue. Um, so good to have you. Thank you so much, Tom Thurman. It's good to see you again, and congratulations on getting that incredible conviction. Thank you. Coming up, we can probably all agree that killers should not profit from their crimes. But what about the families? Uh, and how about the families of suspected killers? A million-dollar payday for the wife of the Gilgo Beach suspect has caught the attention of lawmakers who could send the whole deal down the drain. So when might that happen? Before or after the paycheck? That story's next. A little over a month ago, the alleged Gilgo Beach serial killer, Rex Hewerman, had a court hearing, and his estranged wife, Aza Ellerup, uh, showed up at the court hearing for the first time. But she wasn't alone, so if you see these pictures, look closely, you can see there's a camera crew in tow. Uh, what you don't see is a nice silver Mercedes that she arrived with. And it later came out that Ellerup signed a seven-figure TV deal with Peacock for a docu-series. And as you might guess, it's not sitting well with everybody. Um, And now lawmakers in New York State are actually thinking of broadening their so-called Son of Sam law. That's a law that blocks criminals from profiting off their crimes. The lawmakers think perhaps the relatives should be blocked too. Joining me now is News Nation national correspondent Alex Capriello with all of the details. So what kind of deal did did she actually sign? Like who's getting the money and what's what's the clause? Yeah, reading over these reports, it seems that Asa herself is the one that's going to be taking home upwards of a million dollars in this deal. Uh, But Peacock uh, went out of its way to clarify a little bit, saying that it wasn't actually her participation uh, in this alleged documentary that is the reason that she's getting the money. It's actually the licensing fee for archive materials. And then one other caveat uh, from Peacock, they say that the money that she earns can't actually go towards Rex Hewerman's case or to his defense funds. So while it is a large money and uh, amount of money, and while it's yet to be seen whether or not she's actually going to get it, uh, it's not going to go to Rex Hewerman himself, as far as what I can tell. Yeah, I, never, I, I can never understand how you can, like, tag dollar bills, though. <laughs> you know, so whatever that, you right. know, family has now, they empty out the bank accounts for the defense, and then they refill the bank account with the money from the docs. I mean, come on, we're not dumb. Um, but so the question I have is like the, the, the New York lawmakers and, and how they're they're on the fast track. They don't like this. They know that the money is either headed uh, to Ellerup very soon or already has. So what's what's their plan in terms of trying to block this? Yeah, it seems uh, that they're really trying to get ahead of this as quickly as possible. If this is legislation that passes both the Senate and the Assembly in the state of New York, then it could go into effect immediately, which means that it would potentially add that wrinkle to Ellerup's case. She wouldn't get that money. Uh, Really, you nailed it on the head. It's no longer just about the defendant themselves trying to get money from their alleged crimes or from their story, uh, but also now the family members, people like Ellerup, who might be able to share her insights. Uh, If this law was passed, then now... Uh, that would no longer be a, a case where she could actually reap those rewards. I think I know the answer to this. I think I know what you're going to say. But what have the victim's family members said about this deal? 
Yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, it was not great for them to hear that type of news. I mean, when you think about it, you, you mentioned the Mercedes-Benz, the camera crew. It's really painful to see that type of stuff uh, at a criminal proceeding when you know that your loved one's been lost now for more than a decade. So uh, we have heard from some of the victims' families, Shannon Gilbert, one of the victims, Gilgo Beach victims. Uh, also, Sherry Gilbert, her sister, uh, was the one who really spoke up, saying that she was disappointed, disgusted, flabbergasted and frustrated. It's just so painful, not just to lose your loved one, but you also don't get the chance to reap any rewards or benefits. And now you see family members of the defendant actually doing so. So she was clearly very hurt. And then on top of that, John Ray, who's an attorney representing several of these Gilgo Beach murder victims' families, said, uh, did not mince words in any way, Ashley, calling Eller up a ghoul feeding on the dead. Yikes, that's painful. I do want to just read real quickly that as Ellerup's attorney said, um, it's a sad day in America when people are willing to trample on the Constitution to get press coverage. The next thing they will attempt is to control media coverage. So clearly they, they disagree with the, the naysayers in this deal. Alex Capriello, thanks so much. Good to have you on. Appreciate it. Thanks, Ashley. If you um, ever get pulled over for a DUI, that's driving under the influence that's pretty serious stuff, and we've all heard of it happening. But have you heard of a DDDP driving drunk with a dead passenger? Better yet, have you seen it? Because you're about to. Next. If uh, any of us still need a reminder not to drink and drive over these holidays or any other time for that matter, I have four words to offer you. Nestor Joel Lujan Flores. That is a Texas man who is currently sitting in a jail cell after somebody noticed him slumped over the steering wheel of his very badly damaged car at the Jack in the Box restaurant. I just came through in a drive-thru and there's a guy in the car. It looks like he's been in a car wreck. Looks like he'd been in a car wreck because he was in a car wreck. That was what the car looked like. Somehow he's sitting behind the wheel of this thing. Uh, Local police chief said that when they got there, Flores, quote, smelled like a brewery. But that wasn't the first thing that they noticed when they got on the scene. The first thing that they noticed was the man in Flores' passenger seat. Uh, Because he was not sitting in the seat the way we all do. He was upside down in the seat with his head pointed towards the floorboards. There was also blood on the car, uh, outside the car, even on the trunk of the car. And as you can see, the windshield at that passenger side was pretty much caved in. Another big clue of that passenger upside down, part of his body was missing. In fact, parts uh, Quick check confirmed that that passenger was very dead. He was a homeless man whose pants and even part of his legs had been blown off on impact with that car. Flores told the police that he remembered hitting something but thought it was a deer. Police in a neighboring county actually searched and then they found the human remains 38 miles away from the -the jack-in-the-box where Flores was arrested in that banged-up car. 38 miles... Allegedly, he had hit and killed a pedestrian and then just kept on driving with the victim bleeding out right next to him in the passenger seat inside the car for 38 miles. He has been charged with intoxication manslaughter. The victim was identified because some of his loose dollar bills and his ID card were inside the vehicle, too. Um, There is a charge coming for him, and we'll let you know what happens. 
going to be an easy case. Thanks for watching, everybody. Cuomo is next. Hey, I'm Chris Cuomo. It's Tuesday. We're live. We have all breaking news. So it is time to get after it. And we're going to be doing it together. We're all learning in real time. Now, just as a matter of coincidence, this Colorado state case that just came down that disqualifies former President Donald Trump uh, from its ballot there in 2024 in the primary election. A lot of people are saying he can't be on the ballot. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.